Father, we invite you into this place as we turn our focus from worshiping through song and instrument and our voices, God, to we turn to a time in our service when we, we look to your word, we open up your love letter to us, and we, we focus on the preached word. God, I ask for your presence to come. I ask that I am diminished and you are exemplified. Father, my life is rubbish and you are glory. So I pray that I get out of the way and that you communicate your love. You fill these words. You fill this time. That we may sit at your feet and hear from your mouth. Lord, you have ministered to me in the preparation for this message. I ask that that is communicated and that is, that the same might be true of everyone in this room. So we ask for your powerful Holy Spirit to come. Father, I am nothing without your hand in my life. And we praise you and we say joy and we say hosanna and we say hooray. The king has come. We ask for you to come yet again. As you've been ever so faithful to do, you are never changing. And your mercies are new every morning. We ask for another fresh dose because we are created for that. We are created to crave and desire. We are created with a need for encounters with you. And so we, we sit and we listen and we open up our hearts and our minds and our Bibles, and maybe our notepads, and, and we, we, we sit and we, we receive from you the word that you speak. You speak. Amen. So Abby, my wife, has this, has this habit that I really like. Um, as part of our morning routine, um, typically she wakes up first and gets ready, whether she's at the gym early or whether she's just the first one to get up because it takes longer for our lady friends to get ready, right? And so she is usually the first one up in our house. And then she goes and gets a shower. And when she's done getting the shower, that's usually my cue. Either Drew wakes me up or that's my cue to go, hey, shower's free, go hop in. And so most days, by the time I get out of the shower, I come back and the bed's been made. And, and I think that that is really cool. I don't even know if it's like a conscious thing of hers, but it's just something that she does. But it, I think it's really cool because it starts the day off right. It just kind of like, okay, one thing is done and one thing is good. And it sets their trajectory kind of for the rest of the day. You just, I, have a, I have a friend who does that. He's in a, a, a job that you, he doesn't have a lot of like, he doesn't get to see the results very often. And so he often is like, am I even getting anything accomplished with my life's work? Is anything even happening? But he said, I make my bed every day so I can feel a sense of accomplishment. I mow my own lawn because I can feel like something is getting done. And so we can have these little things in our life that just kind of set the tone for the rest of our day and maybe even the narrative of what's going on in our mind. Now that can happen negatively too, right? Like maybe it's a snide comment as soon as you walk into work. Maybe you say it or somebody else say it. But, but then it it gets in your mind, and then it messes with the rest of your day. And, and something that happened at 8.55 a.m. is still messing with you at 2.30 p.m., 
right? We have these little things that can set their trajectory of how our mind is going to go through that day. One of the things I find interesting about reading the Bible, and you find it in both the Old and the New Testaments, is that in spite of the thousands of years that separate us, and in spite of the differences between our culture and theirs, when you read the stories of individuals in the Bible, and you, you read the spiritual advice given to King David or King Solomon or Jesus, Peter, Paul, James, John, you name all the rest, you see that in many ways their experience was no different than our experience, especially when it comes to interpersonal relationships. And so today we're going to talk a little bit about um, the chaos that we create, the chaos in our relationships. Um, We've been talking about different areas of chaos in our life um, over the last few weeks, and we're going to wrap that up today. So what I'm saying with, it happened back then, They had a hard time getting along with one another, just like today we have a hard time getting along with one another. I'm not merely talking about conflict between nations. I'm not talking about conflict between, like, political parties. I'm talking about conflict between neighbors. I'm talking about marital conflict. I'm talking about family conflict or friendship conflict or or church conflict. It's a problem that transcends time and transcends all cultural boundaries. We are prone to chaos in our relationships. Some are better at getting along than others, but it's a challenge that we all face from time to time. In this wall of separation between me and the ones whom God has called me to love and serve, we all experience that. Sometimes, right, we even like the people on the other side of that relational wall. Sometimes we even love the people. Sometimes we don't. But regardless of the closeness of our relationship, that happens. The thing about relational conflict is that it has the power to make every other problem in our life seem insignificant in comparison. Relational conflict has the power to dominate your life like no other. Just ask anyone who's been through a divorce. Just ask anyone who's had to deal with a rebellious teenager. Just ask anyone who's ever had to experience the betrayal of a friend. And on and on and on. Now, on the other hand, peace can can do that same thing. It can affect every area of your life. You can have, um, Abby and I have had a a, kind of a, just a tough stretch of some circumstances around, but I keep telling people, like, the big rocks in my life are okay, the big pieces, the foundational, and as long as we have that, like, anything can be faced. So it, it can work both ways. Those relationships can provide tremendous peace or tremendous turmoil. Do you remember way back in, like, I think it was the 90s, um, I know not everybody's a football fan, I certainly am, but the Dallas Cowboys, everybody's probably heard of the Dallas Cowboys, and so they won two Super Bowls in a row. They were rolling, right? They had um, Troy Aikman, Emmett Smith, Michael Irvin, the big, the original big three. Now, like franchises, ever sports teams everywhere are trying to pr- reproduce what that was. Um, well, they won two Super Bowls in a row, and how did the owner Jerry Jones respond? He fired his head coach. Okay, it doesn't seem to make much sense, but they fired him because they couldn't get along. They'd been lifelong friends, but the rift between them became too great to repair. And Jones basically said, look, I'd rather miss the playoff for the next several decades than have to work with this guy. It seems crazy, right? 
That's how chaotic conflict can be in our life. When we get embroiled in conflict, we have a tendency to cut off our nose in spite of our face. And when that happens, both sides always lose. Most of the time, most of the time, conflict can be avoided. We have a tendency to create conflict unnecessarily, and then we have a tendency to nurture that conflict and feed it and water it and give it lots of sunlight, right? We do this with our mind. We hear that one little snide remark that we got coming in the way at the door at work, and it continues to grow until it finally becomes self-sustaining and we know we're no longer able to resolve it. It becomes just too big. It doesn't have to be this way. So today, as we wrap up this series, I want to talk about four ways that we can minimize the conflict in our relationships with one another. And these four have the potential to greatly reduce, greatly reduce the conflict in our life. And for the major, major, major conflicts, these four will also, they'll go a long way in getting us on the right track to a full and complete conflict conflict resolution. If you have your Bibles, our text today is Ephesians 4. We'll be in that for most of the day, most of the morning. And um, it's where Paul talks a great deal about church unity. The church in Ephesus was just like every other church that's ever existed anywhere. They had conflict to deal with. They were people. It was like any other people group that's ever existed anywhere. They had to learn to get along with one another. What Paul said to them, he would say to us today, and, and these are steps that you need to take to build unity in your relationships. And there's four of them. So um, I know that I don't always provide the handouts like Dad does, but you get, you get one of those today. And, uh, and so if you'd like to write them down, or if you just want to sit and absorb and experience the counter from God, I believe that, that is great too. So the first step to building unity is to speak the empowering truth. It's kind of a loaded statement. So uh, that Ephesians 4, we'll look in verse 25 first. It says, so stop telling lies. Let us tell our neighbors the truth, for we are all parts of the same body. A few verses before that in 15, Paul says that we should be speaking the truth in love. And a, a few verses later, he says, look, don't use foul or abusive language. Let everything you say be good and helpful so that your words will be an encouragement to those who hear them. Communication is a big piece, right? How and what we communicate. We need to speak empowering truth. In the King James, unwholesome talk is translated corrupt communication. I've heard people talk about speaking the truth as if it always has to be this like confrontational thing, right? And it always has to lead to conflict. They think that speaking the truth is like getting in someone's face, telling them what they're doing wrong. That's not what speaking truth means. That's not speaking truth in love. I have a, a friend of mine who was, I was journeying with him, and he, he, was, he had recently been divorced, and he hadn't shared this piece with me. We journeyed through their difficult marriage and, and talked and everything, but he told me that on their honeymoon... Um, his new bride had said, I think I made a mistake. You know, they dated for years, and then they get to this point of being on a honeymoon, and she says, I, I think I made a mistake. And there were other issues that came in their 
short marriage. They, they fought, fought through and tried to make it work. But that marriage failed after less than five years, I think. And I think that a key component to that was he was never able to get past those hurtful words. Even if they weren't fully meant, even if the, even if the speaker, even if his new bride didn't necessarily mean that, maybe she was just like, going. I don't know. But those were so damaging to his soul, those words, that they played a key role in the failure of that marriage. People have talked about, and we use this analogy a lot when we talk with high schoolers, we, we do something like a, uh, uh, we take a tube of toothpaste, right, and we squirt the tube of toothpaste out, and we tell them the first team to get the toothpaste back in the tube wins. It's a great analogy to say you just can't do that. Once it's out, it's out. Make your objective never to speak words that someone has to get over. I'm going to say that again. Make your objective to never speak words that someone has to get over. Instead, speak the truth. Speak the truth in love. Speak the truth in a wholesome, uplifting, edifying way that brings us to the next step of conflict resolution and really conflict avoidance. So number two is this. Deal with your anger before it takes over your life. You ever been given a warning before that you hated, and then you look back later and you're like, man, I'm glad that was spoken into my life. Think about that for a second. Have you ever been warned, like, hey, you don't want to go down that road? I, I think of even things like, I'm really fortunate to have mom and dad, but I remember, I mean, Abby and I started dating when I was 16 and she was 15. Like, we didn't know anything about relationships like that. that we're young and all that. I remember my mom said, I had a crush. Anybody ever had a celebrity crush before? When I was probably 14 years old, there was this girl named Dominique Mosciano, and she was on the U.S. Olympic team. And, and I, I was just, you know, I'm a 14, 15-year-old. I don't know how old I was at the time when the Olympics hit that time. But I'm like Mr. Olympics. Like when I, I, if I could take three weeks of vacation and just sit around and watch, I would watch almost every Olympic event. The little like the gymnastics with the ball twirling and stuff like that, that one kind of, and then the Winter Olympics, some of the, there's a couple of them that throw me off. But the, not all of them, but I'm like 95% of them. And I'm all, I'm, I, I, like dad knows how excited I get about the Olympics. And so the Olympics started this year. I got a Team USA hat in the mail, like just so I could wear it every night. I come home and I put on my Team USA hat, and he knows I'm I'm like that in the Olympics. So this girl's on the Olympic team, and I'm just like mesmerized. I'm like, oh my goodness, you know, you're 14 year old boy. You're just like, oh my goodness, pretty girl. My mom said, you know, if you're gonna be serious about this Abby girl, you need to drop Dominique Mosciano. Honestly, it's been years since I've even thought about her, but when I, I had kind of a question posed to me on, like, when's the time when you heeded advice? I'm grateful for that. And a little side note here, if, if you're married or if you're committed to someone and, and significant with someone, don't, don't allow your heart and your eyes and your mind to go down that road. I recently was, I went to a movie and somebody was talking about, um, it was Thor, and there's a total stud in that movie named, I think Chris Hemsworth might be his name, but he's a total stud. But I heard a wife talking, it, it shouldn't happen, period, but in front of her husband about the eye candy in the movie and just about, don't do that to yourselves. I don't, to be honest, if it was one of you, I don't remember who it was, but I remember it grieved my heart at the time. Like, oh man, 
If Abby talked about Chris Hemsworth the way that 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 lady just did in front of her husband, that would break my heart. And I would even say that um, it's been a long time since I've been single, but I would even say that even in a single life, like don't set yourself up in that way. There's more depth. That's that's free. That was a side note. That wasn't on today's plan. But just want to encourage you because I think little things like that can make a big difference. That, that goes back to the making the bed story, right? Just one little thing. And you do a lot of little things in the right direction. So no more Dominique Moshiana posters on the wall. Amen. He said, I got an amen about that. That's good. Now let me tell you something. Your anger, just like that was a warning for me to say, hey, your relation, David, son, your relationship will be better if you heed these words. Your anger can serve that. Your anger is a warning signal that something needs to be dealt with. In fact, any negative emotion is a warning signal that something needs to be dealt with. I remember a few years ago, it's been, it's been a while now, but I was, at, I was like up here leading worship and speaking and doing all this stuff for VBS one week. If you've done our, our like full week of VBS, and if you also have a full-time job during the day, like those are long days, and you're, you're, you're running a little thin. And, and I remember I got home from VBS one night, and something set me off. And I was in the garage, and I don't remember even what happened, but I remember there was a bookshelf there, and I remember the bookshelf wasn't in good shape after I was done with it. Like, I don't know if anybody else here has ever dealt with temper. I have dealt with that in my life. And something sparked me, and I don't remember if it was even serious or whatever it was, but I just went to town on that bookshelf. I got mad, and I, that bookshelf was shattered on her floor. You probably have a way different image of me, and I'm glad about that because it's not about me. It's about what the God, God the Father does in us. But I went to town on this bookshelf, and I, I, I just punched it, and I was just like, I, I wanted something to take my aggression out on. It wasn't that I was even mad about the problem. It was that I was, I found out, because I calmed down that night, and I realized that I was so overextended and stressed out, and I had some heart issues that I was neglecting to deal with. That was the problem. My anger, that was the warning signal. That was the warning signal that, hey, we've got to take a step back. We've got to back off on some of these commitments because I'm overextending myself. I'm, I'm stressed to the max. I'm too busy. I needed to hear, heed that warning. Listen to what Paul says in, the, in this Ephesians 4. 26 is, says, and don't sin by letting anger control you. Don't let the sun go down while you're still angry. For anger gives a foothold to the devil. When you're mad at someone, you've got to deal with it. And the closer that person is to you, the sooner you've got to resolve it. You can't just let it fester. Isn't that like an ugly word, fester? It's what happens when there's like this wound that's never cleaned or food that's not properly disposed of. And instead, it's just kind of like left in the cupboard to gnats come and it's gross, right? Like, Laura, you're giving me this grimacey face. That, that's what I get when I fester. That should be that, that face reaction. The same thing will happen with your relationships if you don't deal with your anger in a timely manner. Paul says that ignoring your anger gives a foothold to the devil. Think about a foothold. I just watched, I'm not, a, I'm not really into uh, 
wrestling isn't my favorite sport, but I watched the college championships because there was this unique situation where this guy who had won the Olympics, I want to say he weighed like 225, and in the heavyweight, you, can, you have to be under 285. And so he was 225, 235, something like that last weekend, and he, he wrestled for Ohio State named Kyle Snyder. And I, I kind of been following him because he, he was an Olympian, and it was cool to see him come back and wrestle collegiately, and he was going for his third straight national title at the heavyweight division. He's giving up 50 pounds to these guys, 50, 60 pounds to these guys that he's wrestling against, and he's beating them. And it's amazing, but I, it, there's, I, I learned some things watching just even the technical things that they have to do, because having never been a wrestler, I went to practice a couple times, and I hated it, so I left. But the, the technical things that leverage and all that kind of stuff. But I know one thing is they have an opportunity at certain points in the, the wrestling match to choose their starting position. And you can get points based on getting away from somebody or taking somebody to the ground. And at one point, you can choose like one guy is down here like this, and other guy is uh, around him with his arm on his belly, or you can be the other, other position, or you can both be just kind of facing each other like this. And I think about that. If, if Kyle Snyder would have said, you know what? The guy's last name was like, it wasn't Goon, but it rhymed with Goon. It might have been, it was something like, I don't know, it was humongous. But he was massive, dude. I'm like, if Kyle would have said, you know what? Why don't you go ahead and grab my foot? Like, why don't you go ahead and grab my foot? We're in just as much of a battle in a wrestling match, spiritually, as Kyle was in that national championship. He went on to win. It was, it was incredible. But why would we say, hey, you know what? I, I'm going to let my anger fester. Why don't you go ahead and grab my foot, devil? Why don't you go ahead and grab this? And I'm, gonna, I'm just going to try to start my race, or I'm going to try to fight this fight with you hanging on to my foot. It doesn't make any sense when we look at it like that. We have to deal with our anger in a timely manner. We have to know that the devil isn't going to bring anything good into our life. And in dealing with our anger, you have two options. One, which is most common for me, is that you can come to the conclusion, hey, maybe I'm making something out of nothing here. Maybe I'm overreacting. Maybe I can ignore what that person said or did because in the grand scheme of things, it's not really that important. Maybe I'm making this all about me and my ego, and I need to try to be a little less important. There are some of us who go through life just getting annoyed at every little thing, being offended at every little thing. I don't like the way he looked at me. I don't like the way he spoke to me. You know what? They said that on Facebook, and I don't like it. I'm going to set them straight. Most of the time, not every time, but most of the time, when I'm offended and huffy about something, I see that the person who needs to change is me. And it might just be the same for you. We watched a video in here a few years ago, and I remember the, the video was powerful, but the, most, the thing that stuck with me the most was Michael W. Smith had a quote on there, and he said, I'm trying to live my, the rest of my life never being offended. And I've thought about that so much since then. Because in the big picture, we are the great offender. In the great picture, we're the one that did that. And by that, I mean we're the one that hung him on the cross. We were the need for that. We're the great offender in this.
you can pull back a little, give yourself some perspective. You can say, I refuse to make a big deal about something that isn't a big deal. I'm going to let this go. Now, you don't have to do this every time your emotions are out of control. Because sometimes the situation is serious, and you have to deal with it head on. It's not about me ignoring it. It's about us resolving it together. When there exists a serious conflict between two people, what do you do? You go back to square one of today's message. You sit down with that person. You look them in the eye, and you speak to them empowering truth. You speak the truth in love. You speak the wholesome, uplifting truth in an honorable manner. Even if the topic is tense, even if they're completely wrong, you don't lash out, you don't attack, you don't aim for the jugular, you speak the truth in love. And you resolve it as quickly as possible. Paul says before the sun goes down. So I want to look at the next step in conflict resolution and conflict avoidance. Number three is be the giver, not the taker. Paul said later in the verses, verse 28, Hey, if you're a thief, quit stealing. Instead, use your hands for good hard work and then give generously to others in need. Kind of a little curious. Of course we're not to steal. It's one of the Ten Commandments. What kind of people attended the church of Ephesus that they needed to be reminded not to steal? That's like kind of seems like a no-brainer. And there's no doubt that Paul is speaking literally here. Do not steal. But he's also speaking metaphorically. He's talking about living life with an attitude that says, I'm looking out for me above all else. I'm taking what I need as well as what I want, and I don't care what it costs anyone else. Because after all, it's all about me. That sounds a little crazy, but we do that. We're a selfish people. I don't know if everybody's come to terms with that. We are a selfish people. Some people build their entire career on this concept. What's the least that I can do and still draw a paycheck? What's the most that I can expect for the least amount of effort? If that's your attitude, then no wonder you're in conflict with your coworkers. No wonder things are tense with your boss. They can sense a me-first attitude. I'm going to guess nobody wants to raise their hand and say, yep, that one's me. But some people take this same attitude into a marriage. They're afraid that at some point they might have to give 51%. I'm not an expert on the institution of marriage, but I do know this. There are times when you have to give 100%. It's the same in your relationships with your children, your friends, and even your relationship with the church. When your attitude becomes, what can I give, rather what can I, than what can I take, most of our petty conflicts disappear. I want you to think about that. I highlighted it in marker on my notes. When our attitude becomes, what can I give, Rather than what can I take, most of our petty conflicts disappear. In the first New Testament letter that Paul wrote, he said in 1 Thessalonians 4, 11 and 12, make it your goal to live a quiet life, minding your own business and working with your hands, just as we instructed you before. Then people who are not believers will respect the way you live. It will not need to depend on others. You will not need to depend on others. In the book of Galatians, which is probably the second letter that he wrote, he basically says the same thing, that you should carry each other's load and that we should help carry each other's burdens. 
We create a lot of conflict when we neglect to carry our own weight. At work, at home, in our friendships, in every other area. Others can see our me-first attitude. We also create a lot of conflict for ourselves when we follow others around with this like portable scale, right? So that we can weigh their output in every situation. That's because we don't want anyone else to get away with doing less than their full share. I think if you're on social media, you see this a lot. People kind of put those comments out there. I saw, no, I'm not going to go there. Can it, David? Move on with your notes. There are times, if you're in a relationship, or I'm sorry, if you're in a leadership position, that you need to be sure that everyone is pulling their own weight. Most of the time, however, it's best for all of us to follow Paul's advice in 1 Thessalonians. Mind your own dang business. He didn't say dang, but I thought it was kind of good for emphasis. Instead of nosing into what everyone else is doing, make sure you're carrying your own weight. Our attitude should be, I'm a giver, not a taker. So, of course, the scales will always be a little off balance because I'm a giver. I love, I, I, I'm like sports fan. One of my favorite sports figures right now is right here in Bloomington, Tom Allen. And he, he talks a lot about uh, like, hey, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to work as if it depends on me and pray as if it depends on God. I think that's probably someone else's quote, but he uses it all the time and I love it. My mom has always used a quote in our house, and I think we got it from Mighty Ducks because that was one of my favorite movies as a kid. But be that person. There's this kid named Charlie that he's, it's obvious he's the one that can make the difference for all these neighborhood kids if they want to form this team, this hockey team. And the mom looks at Charlie and says, be that person. My mom has said me to that probably 2,000 times in my life, probably more. We have a little sticker on, our, on their fridge at their house. It says, be that person. That's what our attitude has to be. This needs to be our attitude. And if by chance you have to deal with someone who is just too much of a taker and the situation becomes serious and has to be resolved, what do you do? You go back to square one. You sit down with that person. You look them in the eye. You speak the truth in love. And you look for ways to resolve your differences with integrity. Without hateful words and hostility. It's not always easier for us. Some of us in this room are alphas. And I'm not here acting like I have this and I get this right all the time. Please don't hear that. That's not the case. In fact, recently, I'm still not sure if I handle this situation well, where I irritated someone, I made them so mad that they like picked up their stuff, walked off and storming and got mad at me. And I, I in that moment, I said, whoa, 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 hold on. And even though I didn't feel like I was to blame, and so I'm telling you this, that I don't, this is vulnerable, I, but I think vulnerable can be the birthplace of a lot of really good things. Um, they got mad at me. I still don't know that I was, quote unquote, in the wrong or that I would even do something different. But I said, I'm sorry. Will you give this sit down another chance? And can we move forward? I will take full ownership of what just happened. I don't know that that was the right thing to do, but I'm going to tell you that out of vulnerability that this isn't just cut and dry. But what I do know is I could have done a lot more damage had I said, forget you, I'm out of here. It could have been a lot more damage. If I, 
But for whatever reason, the Holy Spirit said, just can it and say you're sorry. <laughs> I think it was the Holy Spirit. might have been, I don't know what it was, but it was something. And, and I know that at least there wasn't more damage done. And that relationship lived to see another day. Now let's look at the fourth step in avoiding and or resolving conflict. And this one we all may have learned either in kindergarten or vacation Bible school or these are messages that are taught down that ramp to, to our kids from very early age. Make kindness and compassion the key word of the day, every day. Make kindness and compassion the key word of the day. Ephesians 4.32, at the end of this little passage we're looking at, last verse there says be kind to each other tender-hearted forgiving one another just as God through Christ has forgiven you another translation says be kind and compassionate to one another pretty famous preacher Chuck Swindoll talks about visiting a university president's office who had a sign on the wall that just simply said kindness spoken here what a powerful message what a powerful purpose to pursue in our interactions with other people. Just be kind. Just be compassionate. You don't have to fly off the handle. You can stay on the handle. You, your relationships can be much better for it. You don't have to be snarky on Facebook or Twitter or even in real life. Even when the other person is in the wrong, you can still be kind. You can still be compassionate. Don't worry. They're not going to get away with anything, okay? They're not going to get away with anything. If it's really serious, you can resolve the conflict with the other person in a biblical way. It might sound familiar, speaking the truth in love and resolving the situation together before the sun goes down in your anger. We've talked about those things, right? And, and you can do it in a kind and compassionate way. I think that's oftentimes a missing component. You know what helps me develop an attitude of kindness and compassion? That, I don't know that that comes naturally, right? Kindness and compassion isn't always our DNA flow. This helps. Get, get yourself ready. Brace yourself. That part of verse 42. Forgiving each other just as Christ God forgave you. None of us are in a position to throw the first stone, ever. When it comes to sin, we all bear the same stain. We all need to be forgiven by Christ. Remind, remember, we're the great offender. We are the great offender. Romans 3.10 says, no one is righteous, not even one. Not me, not you, no, not one. Don't think for a second that because I stand up here and I preach Jesus... That me or dad or anyone else is righteous. Outside of any work that God, that Jesus is, is doing in our lives, that's the only righteousness we bear. I think that we get that confused sometimes. Me is what needs to die. The me part of me is what needs to die. He needs to live. I need to die for something, anything good to come, for him to live. 
So when you've got conflict with others, and they're in the wrong, and it needs to be resolved, you approach the situation with the same compassion that Christ demonstrated for you when he saved you out of the miry clay. My challenge is that every day you will make this your keyword. I will be kind and compassionate to everyone I meet. I think that sometimes we, we complicate, we overcomplicate what being Christ-like or what being a disciple, a follower of Jesus and bearing his name looks like. That's a great start. I will be kind and compassionate to everyone I meet. It doesn't mean it's easy, it means it's simple. So these, these four steps that we've talked about today to help us avoid most of our conflicts and, and take us along a long way in the right direction as far as resolving the rest of them. One, speaking the truth in love, the empowering truth. Two, dealing with your anger and your negative emotions before they take over your life and cause unnecessary damage. Three, being a giver and not a taker, carrying your own weight and minding your own dang business. And then four, treating others with kindness and compassion, forgiving as Christ forgave you. A commitment to these four things, these four habits, will make your life much better in every single way. I'm officially, like, in my conclusion now, I'm wrapping things up, but I, I want you to see this one more thing. In all this talk in Ephesians 4 about living in unity, Paul says in verse 30, and do not bring sorrow to God's Holy Spirit by the way you live. Remember, he's identified you as his own. He's called you his child. He has adopted you into his family. He has called you. He has identified you as his own, guaranteeing that you will be saved on the day of redemption. Don't bring sorrow to God's Holy Spirit. Another translation says, don't grieve the Holy Spirit of God. He's talking about unity, and he says, don't grieve the Holy Spirit. That's because God is grieved when we get petty with one another. It breaks his heart. Think about, think about what it's like if you're a parent when you see your kids fighting. Like yesterday, we had a... We, every day when you're a parent of young kids, you have both, right? Hopefully, or maybe not... I don't know. Our experience is you get both. You get bickering and screaming and slamming of doors, and you get hugging. And like, what the heck? It was like two seconds ago. Everything was good. Now it's in World War III. And then, whoa, there they are again. You know, like you get glimpses where it's just like, you broke my Lego. I worked an hour on it. I just built that thing. To then like yesterday we had this sweet little moment where we did that. Uh, there was free ice cream at Brewster's if you wore your PJs. And so we went as a family, and it was like sleeting. So we ate it in the minivan, and all three of our kids were in the back, and they were like sharing their ice cream cones and just having those like peaceful. I was like, this could turn out really. I didn't even know if I wanted to go because I knew that that was a chance that we'd have to eat in the van. And, and I got this picture of them and I'm just like, oh, that's cool. That does happen. You know, it's a cool reminder. But when it's not like that, my heart breaks. When I see my kids fighting with each other, my heart grieves. That's how it is with our father. That's how it is with God the father grieves when he sees his kids fighting. Abby and I are seeking out, we've sought out a handful, we, we have some kind of parenting mentors, 
And there, there's kind of like two qualifying factors that we use to, on, on who those are. And there's a lot of great parents, but we get to work with a lot of um, high school kids. And so we love seeing people, students that come through our ministry, if those kids love Jesus and love each other, we want to go talk to them. And so we've talked to some of you over the years about what that has looked like, but there, there's, a, there's a couple of couples that we particularly seek out and we're, we see that their kids are just, they love the Lord with all their heart. And my goodness, do they love each other. Because we want, we want to experience that. We want, we want our kids to know that. We know that there's no magic formula in parenting. We just want to, we constantly crave that because it's, it's a tremendous desire of our heart. And it's a tremendous desire of the heart of the father to see his kids getting along. God is grieved when we put each other down. God is grieved when we adopt an air of arrogance. He wants his people to live together in peace. And his attitude is not, hey, maybe someday when you get around to it. His attitude is starting right now. Maybe there's someone in your life with whom you've had conflict and it's gone on too long. Maybe you're in the right or they're in the right. But either way, it's time to make the situation right. Paul said, Romans 12, 18, do all that you can to live in peace with everyone. The time's now. Don't wait. Will you stand with me? I want to pray. Now, I'd invite the band back up and um, ushers, if you'd take your place, for, for we'll collect tithes and offerings in a minute. I'm just going to pray. That your word says, if it is possible, as far as it depends on us, live at peace with everyone. As we're praying right now, I just want you to like draw a circle around yourself, like a symbolical circle around yourself. And in your heart, I just want you to say, God, it is my intention to make this an area conflict, uh, area conflict free zone. That there will be no conflict come in this circle. In this area, I, I'm not going to take myself too seriously. I will not become easily offended. I'll speak a language of kindness and compassion. I'll speak a language of empowering truth. In this no conflict zone around me, God, I will carry my own weight and I will do what I can help other carry, others carry theirs. And God, in those moments when conflict becomes unavoidable, I will refuse that it's unresolvable. So I will deal with it directly. God, with your anointing and your power, I will deal with it with love and respect for others. God, may this be our attitude in our church, in our families, in our friendships, in our workplace. May the Holy Spirit never be grieved in our midst. But may you be glorified. And may the world take notice. That is our prayer today. 
our, the chief end of man is that God may be glorified. May the world take notice. Anoint us to be kind and compassionate, forgiving one another in love in a way that is so supernatural that it is identified as that can't be that person, that has to be something living in and through that person, and that has to be this Jesus I've heard about. That there might be an insatiable appetite to learn more because of the fruit in our lives. That's our prayer. That's why we lay down our coats and our palm branches and whatever it is to roll out the red carpet and say, hooray, the king has come. Hosanna in the highest glory to the king. The arrival of Jesus, he's moved into my neighborhood. And he will not only affect the life of me and my family, but of the people next door and the people down the street and the people that I work with and the people that I go to church with. Because he's capable. Because he's a king who's willing to say, I'm humbling myself with coming in all authority and all power to ride a donkey instead of a war horse, to come in peace. to come and lay down his life for me and for you. Amen.